Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. The scripture reading today is Acts 9, verses 19 through the end of the chapter. And this is, uh, we're picking up right in the middle of a, a sentence here. So this, we're picking up with a little bit of Saul's conversion and then, and then moving on. So, Acts 9, verse 19. <clears throat> and he took food and was strengthened. Now, th- for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Now, as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated in Greek, is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, The disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, Do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, 
And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. It began... It became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a a tanner named Simon. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's been over a month, well over a month, since we were in the book of Acts together as a church family, and we are situated right on the cusp of a very significant, pivotal moment in the book when we come to Acts chapter 10, starting next week. There, through that whole chapter and into chapter 11, there is an event that takes place that, uh, where God is doing something that definitively shows that He is intending to include the Gentiles in His covenant of grace. Not by bringing them into the theocratic kingdom of Israel, but by sending the gospel out to them where they live and welcoming them into the number of his people where they are in their land and under very or significantly new terms than he's ever allowed people to relate to him before. And these are things that a Jewish believer at that time would have found very unsettling and difficult to accept and believe. I thought about diving right into chapter 10 Uh, today, but I realized that the second half of chapter 9, which we hadn't really covered well, uh, provides us an opportunity. It it is like uh, Luke is is writing it in such a way as to really set up what comes later. And this is an opportunity for us to just take stock of where he has us positioned in the book and where he's taking us next. So think of this today as a kind of preparatory message for next week when we're going to cover a lot of text And it's an incredible account of incredible deeds. So let's let's step back from the book of Acts for a second. Just get a big picture, use our wide-angle lens. What is the book of Acts about? Acts is about the continuing, ongoing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ascended Lord Jesus Christ, by His Spirit through His church. That's what Acts is about. At the very beginning of Acts, he ascends into heaven. He, having completed his earthly life and ministry and his death and his resurrection, he has done his work. But, and he goes to his father, but his work is not done. It continues now with greater power and fullness by his spirit through his church. And so Acts, which is where this starts to be worked out and realized, is in very real sense a, a, an account, a history that is being played out right here in our midst today, with you and me. We have the same Spirit, the same Lord. He is still continuing His mission on earth through His, and with all of our brothers and sisters in the Lord all over the world, we are living this out. It is not done. Acts, is, we can be very thankful for this book because it's a really important bridge between the gospel accounts of the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the later writings of the letters of the apostles. Without this bridge and the facts and history that it tells, we would not really be able to comprehend or appreciate the letters like we do. So it's an extremely important book. We can be very thankful for it as a bridge between the Gospels and the letters. It's structured as a book, as we've said several times, along the lines of the expanding mission that Jesus lays out in the first chapter. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says to his disciples just before his ascension into heaven, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, 
both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The first section of the book of Acts, which we're done with, focused on the, the blessing of the Spirit and the work of the apostles in Jerusalem. We're now in the second section of the book, which takes place in the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. And we are on the cusp of the moment when this mission of Jesus is going to break through into the Gentile lands. And that's where we're going to spend more than half of the book is spent out there um, in the wider world. This is very important. These lines of expansion that Jesus lays out are not just geographical. It's not like just crossing little state lines on the map, going from Missouri or Indiana to California. It's not just geographical, okay? It's, It's ethnic, it is cultural, it's covenantal, this expansion. Jesus' expanding mission signaled a radical end to the former covenant system that God had set up, in which the boundaries of God's people were coterminous or synonymous with the nation of Israel, with the Jewish nation and its centralized worship, its system of sacrifices, its dietary laws, and even its covenant sign of circumcision. All of those things together worked to erect a wall that, divide, that God erected by his law that divided off Jew from Gentile. And God used this wall, he erected this wall, so that he could separate out from all of the peoples of the earth a people for his own possession, a a, a holy nation that belonged to God. And he he could make them clearly his and clearly different and clearly holy in a set apart, sanctified sense. But that is all changing. And it's changing under our feet as we work through the book of Acts. And it's very significant change that's being brought about. Jesus came, he did his work, he lived, he ministered, he died, he was resurrected, and he fulfilled in his life and his ministry all of the Old Testament signs and types and ceremonies of the law. And he is ushering in by his work a new covenant enacted on new and better promises. That's the words of the author of Hebrews. A new covenant enacted on new and better promises. And the scope of this new covenant is, we come to this word and we often scratch our head in the creed when we say it, the scope of this new covenant is not national, it's Catholic. What does the word Catholic mean? Worldwide, universal, all-encompassing. That's the scope of this new covenant in Jesus Christ. It is all-encompassing. And to what end is this mission going out? Well, to this end, it prophesies in, in Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk 2.14 says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The mission is going that far. Like white on rice. And it says in Revelation, so that every tongue and tribe and nation may be counted among God's people. Isn't that amazing? There's work to be done still, isn't there? The mission is, is here among us and ours to carry out. But it begins here. It brings about significant and, for many people, unsettling changes. To They feel the earth moving under their feet. 
Another thing to realize about the kingdom of of Christ and its expanding mission is that it's a spiritual kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. And so it transcends all the ethnic lines and the geopolitical lines. It It just hops right over them. It transcends them. It respects them. It keeps them in place. It has demands and expectations and burdens it puts on all of our normal boundaries and divisions, but it keeps them in place. It transcends them. What it does is it comes and it sets up its seat. It establishes its rule in the hearts and minds of men all over the world. It comes and it changes them. It sets them free from sin. It casts out the darkness. It puts a heart of love and compassion in in the place of a heart of innate, deep-seated selfishness. It sets free captives. It enlightens the mind. It's so radical a change that the kingdom of Christ brings into hearts and minds that the New Testament talks about it in terms of new birth, like being born all over again, being made a new creature. That's the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the spiritual kingdom. Has it come to you? I hope so. It's a great thing. That's, this, all this is beginning to happen in this book of Acts. We're starting to see it. We're right on the cusp of this new covenant where Luke has us positioned right here. Right, this new covenant, this advancing mission, breaking out into the Gentile world. The wall separating Jew from Gentile is about to be definitively torn down or demoed by the Holy Spirit. And anticipation of this Luke is, you know, he's telling, he's, he's laying out a history and anticipating, as a good author would, he gives us key players. He's introducing us to, to or reintroducing us to key players in, in what God is doing. And so here in chapter 9, we, we have, we're introduced to Paul, the converted Paul and his early ministry and activity, which he immediately gets to work doing. And we're also brought to focus again on Peter. These two men are like very significant and necessary and important for what the Holy Spirit is going to do. Saul of Tarsus, who we know by his Greek name Paul, we've talked last time we were in Acts um, together about his conversion, where he goes, he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he goes in the space of three short days from being the arch enemy of the church, breathing out threats and murder against Christianity and against Christ to becoming its greatest ever advocate and champion. And it's a beautiful transformation. Someone Jesus uses more than anybody to send the message out into the world. And we also get a short section here about Peter, who Scripture clearly makes it clear that he is the foremost apostle. He's the top dog. He's the leader. He's the most influential man in Christianity in those days. And... He, has, he alone has the standing, the stature among the early Christians to oversee and give approval to what the Holy Spirit, the radical thing that the Holy Spirit is about to do in chapter 10. And so in Luke puts a, bring, brings our attention back to Peter just on the cusp of going into chapter 10. Talks and promotes him in our eyes. Let's look at these sections together. In the first place, verses 19 through 30, we find 
Paul, the apostle, newly minted apostle, converted to Christ, he responds to Christ's call by immediately giving himself fervently to his evangelistic calling and ministry. When we last left him, he was blinded by Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Jesus tells him to go into the city and wait there for a message. And after three days of anxious prayer and fasting, that message finally is delivered to him in the form of a man named Ananias, who comes to him sent from the Lord. He has a vision. Jesus says to him, go to this man, Paul, and deliver this message. What's the message? He was to tell Paul that you are a chosen instrument of the Lord's. He chooses you as his special instrument. And here's what you're going to do. He's chosen you to bear his name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And you will be shown how much you must suffer for his sake. That's the message. And it comes with the laying on of hands and the commissioning of a, of an, into apostleship and healing for his blindness. The scales come off his eyes. He gets up and is baptized first thing. And then he eats and is strengthened. And immediately, it says in verse 20, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. That's an amazing and radical transformation and change. Do you remember why Paul came to Damascus? He had come with extradition letters, authority to bind, take captive disciples of Jesus, and those letters were to the leaders of the synagogues in Damascus from the chief priest back in Jerusalem. Well, he, once, he's, once he's now the, the servant of Jesus, a higher authority than the chief priest, he goes to the synagogues in, the very sense, in a sense, with the, you know, now with a higher authority, still making claims of captivity. He says to them, he doesn't come for, for the disciples of Jesus, he comes for them. And he says, he is the son of God, and you owe him your worship and allegiance and obedience. Isn't that amazing? People knew about the Apostle Paul. They knew he was coming, that he had a reputation because of his intensity and his zeal for persecuting the Christians. Ananias knew and was afraid to go see him. And the people who see this transformation and observe him now preaching are amazed. They're continually amazed and they're talking to each other. Isn't this the guy that came up here? This is incredible. He's notorious. But they see that his behavior is no fit, no passing fit or fat. It says in verse 22 that Saul, or Paul, kept increasing in strength. So he kept... He kept going down this road. He kept up with this message, he, and he grew into it. He kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ, proving from the Scriptures, arguing from the Old Testament Scriptures and the prophecies and the types and the shadows of the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of all this stuff. He is the Savior, the Christ. Paul got to his evangelistic work immediately. He didn't delay. He obeyed the Lord. He got right to it. And this is something I want to stress because it's helpful to us. He grew into it. Okay? He grew into it. 
it's, it's tempting to think of men like the Apostle Paul as superheroes that you can't even relate to, and, you know, how could you ever aspire to be anything like that? Well, one, there's a really beautiful indication from verse 22 that Paul kept increasing in strength. That means he grew into it. This is one of those moments in the book of Acts where Luke has compressed time. For the sake of efficiency and telling a long story, he has to cut some corners, compress time. Three years transpire in these little verses. This is, we're talking about three years of time that Paul is ministering there. And so when it says he kept increasing in strength, we're talking about like how you increase in strength. You go to the gym, day one, you're not in shape and it's painful and hard. And you're, you know, you're, you come home sore and tired and worn out. And you don't want to go again the next day. But if you have, you know, commitment, panache or whatever, you go back and you, and you keep after it and you grow in strength. You increase in strength. Now, yes, the Lord is increasing his strength and helping him, but he's trying, he's failing, he's learning from conversations that didn't go like he planned or hoped, he's thinking about how he can do it better, he's increasing in strength, and he's confounding the Jews. This is something that happens day by day with practice. One of the reasons we don't improve at evangelism is we don't start We don't start because we don't want to fail and fall on our faces. And so we don't increase in strength. If Paul can grow, you can grow. That's my point. God recently put me, in his kindness, in a position where I had to do some tough evangelistic work. Had to have a couple of conversations that were hard and evangelistic. And I don't think I utterly failed, but I certainly didn't do very well. (laughs) You know, I felt myself really out of my depth, struggling. Oh man, I don't know what to say. I do not know how to respond to that. Yikes. This is embarrassing. You know, I'm really struggling here, treading water. And you know, it didn't go, you know, there weren't fireworks at the end. (laughs) You know, there was no prayer to accept Jesus. It was just a struggle and a difficult thing. I'm glad that God gave me the experience of doing it. Because why? Well, I was observing myself. And I've been thinking a lot about it afterwards. And I, I walked away thinking, well, I hope to do that better next time if God gives me opportunity. And I think I'm probably going to have, maybe not opportunities with that person, but opportunities for similar conversations along those lines. I better get good at it. Well, there was an opportunity to learn and to increase in strength. One of the most helpful ideas that my high school piano teacher introduced me to is the idea, the concept of aptitude. Aaron Jones, you with me? Remember aptitude? We learned about this from our piano teacher. Aaron and I came from the same town. Aptitude is this idea that we all have different capacities or potential for the same thing, whether it be uh, basketball or math or the flute, whatever it is. If we all give our, the same amount of energy and determination and practice to, to one of those things together, we're all going to come out with very different outcomes. That's because we all have different aptitudes for things, okay? 
probably none of us has the aptitude for evangelism that the Apostle Paul had. He had a lot of natural gifts that made him a really good chosen vessel or an instrument in the Lord's hands. He had facility with language. He had a kind of tenacious personality. He had, um, uh, he had Greek heritage and Jewish heritage. He knew the scriptures. He knew culture. He knew a lot of things that made him a really good instrument for doing the work God appointed him to do at that time. And, and he had brilliance, and he had logic, and he had lots of good things. Probably we don't have the same aptitude as the Apostle Paul, but we have an aptitude. And we certainly share, have our share, according to our gifts, in the same burden of mission and evangelism as the Apostle Paul. He might be our, a champion among us, a giant among us, But we're all, he's among us, and we all share in it together, this burden of sharing the gospel and preaching it to the lost. We have an aptitude, and we need to try. And if we try, we'll fail. And if we fail, we'll grow. And like the Apostle Paul, day by day, we'll increase in strength, just like with anything else in life. Well, another reason why we don't want to evangelize is because it might lead to people rejecting us. And rejection is something the Apostle Paul constantly suffered. And he suffered a lot because of it in his life. And we see that immediately starting to happen for him wherever he is, first in Damascus and then in Jerusalem. And actually, we don't see it in this text, but while he's in Damascus, we, he, he experiences some trouble out in Arabia. We learn from his letters that during these three years, he also tries his wings as an as a evangelist to the Gentiles out in Arabia. He goes on a missionary journey, a little one, and stirs up some trouble. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Paul ran into trouble wherever he was. In Damascus, we read in verse 23 that the Jews plotted together to do away with him. And when we compare Luke's account with Paul's in 2 Corinthians 11 of this same event, we see that this plot of the Jews against him also includes co-conspirators, the Nabataeans, I think they're called. These are the Arabians. It's the Nabataean kingdom, and it's out to the east and all the way down around to the south, Arabia, the Nabataeans. And what Paul says is they... um, the, the, like the ambassador, as it were, of the Nabataeans in Damascus gets involved in this plot to have him killed. So Luke focuses on the Jews' involvement. Paul focuses on the Arabians' involvement, but they're like working together. Probably the Jews are like conspiring with this diplomat to station mercenaries or guards or whatever at the, at the gates to have this man killed that they hate. Paul's life is threatened. And he has to be led out secretly by a basket, in a basket, down the wall by his, by his disciples. That's in Damascus. In Jerusalem, when Paul gets there, he's at first not warmly received uh, by the disciples of Christ there. They're afraid of him. It says in verse 26, they're not sure that he isn't some kind of like spy, some kind of um, 
secret agent who's trying to sneak in among them and entrap them. They've heard, I mean, it's three years have passed, but they still, Paul, the memory of Paul is fresh in their minds, and they're suspicious. And this godly Barnabas, who becomes a very close life ministry partner with the Apostle Paul, and you can start to see why. Barnabas sticks his neck out for Paul. He spends his capital on this man, Paul. He, he trusts him. He believes. And he, he becomes like an intermediary for Paul, and he brings him to the apostles, and he says, here, this man, here's what I know about him. Here's what I've seen. I, I buy it. He has, he has risked a lot for Jesus already. He's spoken out boldly for him. So this is beautiful involvement of Barnabas in Paul's behalf here. But then what does Paul do? He starts, it says in verse 28, he went about in Jerusalem freely, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. He's there for 15 days, 15 days doing this work. We know that from one of his letters when he's describing his time in Jerusalem, this first visit. He says, it was 15 days I was there. And during these 15 days, he goes about doing his work as an evangelist. And he picks up the apologetic work of Stephen, the martyr, is he goes to the Hellenists, just like Stephen was in the habit of talking to the Hellenists. And he was reasoning with them and pleading with them and arguing with them. And they have the same response to Paul that they had to Stephen. It says they were trying to put him to death. So this is something the, the Apostle Paul runs into wherever he goes. Why did people reject Paul? It Was Paul not good at his job? Was Paul not nice or nice enough? I was tempted to say that Paul was like just a lightning rod of a man, like a polarizing figure. But I don't think that that does this justice. That's not, forget Paul. It doesn't matter what Paul was like. Paul had a polarizing message that was given to him to, to proclaim. It has nothing to do with Paul or his personality. I mean, God used his personality. But forget Paul. The message is divisive. It, the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ are they're absolute. And it, you don't have a sort of passive response or a kind of middle response or a sort of shrug of the shoulders response to it very often if it's really faithfully complained, or not complained, proclaimed. <laughs> Paul carried around a lightning rod of a word from the Lord. And Jesus is the truly polarizing figure in the story and in the interactions, not Paul. Paul does a beautiful job in 2 Corinthians of kind of explaining this in poetic words. 2 Corinthians 2, he says, speaking of himself and the other apostles and ministers, he says, we are like a fragrance of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, what we have to say is an aroma of Death to death, we stink like rotten flesh. It's, we're putrid to people. We're hateful to people. We're disgusting. And to the other, an aroma of life to life. And thanks be to God, Paul saw both responses. Otherwise, how could he bear it? There were beautiful responses, and we see it, just tastes of it in this 
passage where in the short spaces of time, he has people who are so committed to him and his welfare that they're trying to sneak him out of town and, then he, and you know, hatch these crazy plots to save his life. And so there were people who were like, his word, his message, the message of Jesus was like life to life, and they loved the messenger. And there, but there are others, like the Hellenistic Jews, the Jews in Damascus, the Arabians. It was like death to death. Shut that guy up. Shut him down. We want him out of here. How did Paul have faith to face such hostility and rejection? How do you have faith for it? A young man wanted to meet with me this week. And he wanted to talk to me about how he could overcome his cowardliness. That was really the substance of the conversation. I didn't know what he wanted to talk about, but that was basically the question. How can I overcome my fear of man that keeps me so quiet? I am just a nice guy, and I know I'm good for nothing to Jesus that way but I can't seem to do anything about it. What can I do? Can you, do you have any practical wisdom for me? Because I've heard a lot of like theological talk, but do you have any practical wisdom? And as I listened and asked questions, he kept saying, it was clear on his mind that somehow this idea that what he needed to do was just somehow to become willing to be hated by a lot of people. He said that a number of times. And finally, I just said, no, 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 stop, stop. You're never going to get anywhere, nowhere thinking about that. Just nowhere. That is not motivating. <laughs> the goal, and it's not a goal. It's not a scriptural goal. I just need to get willing to be hated by a lot of people. That is not going to get any of us anywhere or anywhere good. But you do need a motive. He just didn't have the right one, I don't believe. And I could identify with him. I've had thoughts like that too. What's wrong with me? I just need to like steal myself or get up the nerve to be hated. No, no, no. I just said, it struck me to just say, you know, you do need a motive. You need something more beautiful, more compelling, more enticing, more attractive than fear. And I think love is what that is. I think you need to grow in love. Don't worry about courage. Courage is almost like an accident that comes along to help you in your love when you need it. <laughs> what you need is just to love. You need to, you need to love the Lord and his truth. You need to love that it's how, how amazing and powerful it is, how good it is, how freeing it is to live in it. You need to understand and contemplate and meditate on the love of Jesus Christ, which has been lavished upon you. And then you need to look around at people and think, oh, I can't believe it's so horrible how in bondage to lies and oppressed they are. It's so horrible. I love them. I don't want them to live that way. I don't want them to die. I don't want them to be damned. And partly it's like God made them to be his, in his image. And I love the Lord and it's just wrong. <laughs> and I want to do something about it.
And I was, I was, as we were just talking about this, I didn't really had these thoughts before, but you know, when you have conversations, you have new thoughts, or you realize what you think <laughs> as you're talking. And I said, you know, it reminds me of what John says in his letter, that perfect love casts out fear. And I think that's one of the really good applications and uses of that verse, which is often abused. But that's a great application of that verse. Perfect love casts out your fear of man. And the one who doesn't love is not perfected, or the one who, doesn't, who, one who fears is not perfected in love. And so let's, get, let's grow. Let's pray and ask God and find ways to grow in our love. Because then I think we'll suddenly realize we've grown in courage. We've grown in a lot of things. Because they come along of necessity to help us with our love. So that's the Apostle Paul and the early activity of his ministry where he's spreading his wings, practicing the work of an evangelist and an apostle and immediately running into trouble, but persevering and growing and being strengthened. And God's using him. Well, he runs into trouble in Jerusalem and the disciples there sneak him out of town off to the coast and they put him on a ship to save his life and they send him to his hometown of Tarsus. And that's the shelf that the, the writer Luke puts him on for a time. We're going to come back to Paul and more than half of this book of Acts is really just about the Apostle Paul and a lot of this is just building up to him. We get this introduction to him here in the taste of his new life in Christ. But now we go to Peter. And Luke takes us back to Peter as a, as a setup for the events that immediately follow in Acts 10. Peter, who is wandering around the region, visiting the saints, trying to uh, be used of God wherever there is need of him, visiting people, strengthening them, ministering, spreading the, the good news of Christ performing miracles and healing people. He performs two notable miracles in two cities back-to-back that, were, that, that, uh, Peter, that Luke draws our attention to. And he draws our attention to them in general to serve as a, as a way of building the reader or our confidence and respect for Peter to establish his unique standing. But also there is a unique message, I think, in each one that's connected to the names of the, the people healed. Now, the, it's very rare, it turns out, in the writings of Luke for Luke to mention or assign a given name to anybody who receives a miracle of healing. In the whole gospel of Luke, as far as I can tell, nobody is named by name that's healed. Four people are named in the book of Acts. Three of them are in this chapter. Isn't that interesting? So I smell a plot. The first one is Paul. Paul is healed of his blindness by the Lord through Ananias. And he is named. We know his name. But here, the other two, oh, then, the, then the, the, the second one, or the fourth one, as it were, is later in chapter 20, Eutychus. Remember Eutychus, a young man who falls out of a window listening to Paul? His name means fortunate or lucky. And there's a play on words that's absolutely intended by Luke. It's very fortunate for Eutychus that he was listening to the apostle Paul. When this happened, because Paul goes down and raises him from the dead. Well, here are two back-to-back occurrences of miracles of healing where the individual, very uncommonly, is named. 
first one is Aeneas, and the second one is Tabitha. So in Lydda, Peter, verse 33, it says, found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So what is the significance of this healing of this man Aeneas? Aeneas? Peter healed a lot of people. Why is this one brought to our attention? Well, I think it's because of the cultural potency of this name, Aeneas. Aeneas is the name of a very significant hero in Greek and Roman mythology. And the focus of one of the most celebrated works of Roman literature, Virgil's Aeneid. Aeneas, Aeneid. They go together. So according to legend or myth, Aeneas is one of the few survivors of the Trojan War. And the gods instruct him to get on a ship. And they sail, lots of several adventures along the way. But eventually they land in Italy. And he becomes, according to legend and myth the father, grandfather, something, of Romulus and Remus, the founders, the mythical founders of Rome. Okay? Now, Rome at this time is the center of the known world. It is the seat of Gentile power, the city of the Caesars. Rome is where this, is where this book is aiming. It's that Rome is the end of this book. It's where Paul has an ambition all through his ministry to get to, and by the end of his life and ministry, he does. The book of Acts, and he gets there by a ship. Pretty neat. The book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome for two years, it says, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Unhindered is the last word of the book of Acts. I love it. One of the major themes of this book is the unstoppable power of the message of Christ. And here we have, in the person of this Aeneas, some foreshadowing, the part of Luke, the, the author, pointing to his name, some foreshadowing of the big things to come, and the aim of this book, and the aim of the, the, the expanse of the kingdom of God, according to this book, in the healing of this man. So because of the mythological Aeneas's significance, you might think, well, you know, he's a, he's a big deal in the Roman Empire. For hundreds of years, they've known about this myth and this legend. He's like a hero of Rome. He's like, he's become so identified, synonymous with Rome. This is probably just a really popular name and common name, and so I'm not sure that I buy that it's significant. But it turns out, as far as we can tell, nobody in Palestine at this time, at this, at this time has that name. It's like just super unique and odd. We know, we know some things about how people were named in those times. You can glean certain facts. That fact is unique. It's like, that's weird that he had this name. And it's also unique that Luke draws our attention to it because that's not the kind of thing Luke does. And so it seems very intentional. I like to think of Luke, the historian, sitting down with people who know what's going on. Maybe Peter himself, and gleaning facts for his history that he's writing and saying, no, wait, what happened? Hold on. You, what? You healed a man named Aeneas? 
right before going to Cornelius' house? This is too great. I gotta get this into the book. (laughs) It's like a signpost that Luke is putting here on the road to Rome. And it is the road to Rome that is the goal, the, the, the aim of this book because it's such a symbol of conquering the world through the message of Christ. Isn't that cool? So while he's there in Lydda, well, I should say a word just about miracles. Christ's healing of Aeneas brought Peter uh, through Peter is clearly becomes widely known. People see this man, and many, all, it says, in those regions turn to the Lord. Isn't that an amazing thing? It has quite a, a powerful effect. And miracles in the Gospels and in Acts are not ends unto themselves. They are addendums, added things that attest to the, power, the truthfulness, the accuracy of the message and of the messenger. These, the message of Jesus is, is a radical thing. The message of the kingdom is a radical thing. And the miracles are added by God to, to make people realize this is, this is the truth, to attest to the truth of the message and the trustworthiness of the messengers. And in both instances here of miracles, we see these miracles that are performed having an effect of drawing people to the Lord. They don't draw people to themselves. They draw people to the Lord. Well, while Paul is in Lydda, a delegation arrives from Joppa to plead with him to come there. We don't know if, Paul, or if Peter understood why they wanted him, but they come, they're sent, they want Peter to come to Joppa. A woman has died there, a widow who is very dear to the saints of that city because of her charity, because of her service. Her name is Tabitha. And this has some significance because it's uh, both her name and the, the events surrounding her healing have a lot of echoes of an earlier healing that Jesus performed. Do you remember the word that Jesus used to heal a certain man's daughter? Talitha? Talitha? This is only one letter different. Tabitha and Talitha are only, they differ in one letter, okay? And the words used to raise them from their deathbed or or from the dead, as it were, are Tabitha cum or Talitha cum. This is not accidental. Luke's a great author. (laughs) Great authors are doing allusions all the time to try to reinforce certain uh, um, perspectives and feelings and understandings about people. And Luke is trying to bolster our confidence in this man, Peter. And so the, all, all the way down from being called from a distance, appealed to by somebody coming to them, that these accounts of the healing of Jairus' daughter and of, of, of Tabitha, there's so many similarities. And Luke is intentionally drawing comparisons here. But even more significantly, I think, is is the name of her town, Joppa. Joppa, 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 Joppa. 
Ten times the name, the word Joppa occurs between here and halfway through chapter 11. And even just in the, look at the last verses here of this passage and just the emphasis that he gives on this name. Verse 42, it became known all over Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. And this just keeps going on and on. Joppa this, Joppa that, Joppa, Joppa, Joppa. Now what, have you heard Joppa before in scripture? Where have you heard it? What's the most significant occurrence of Joppa? Well, yes, Cornelius, but before that, in the Old Testament, Jonah. Now, this is interesting. There's a lot of comparisons here that are, Luke is, is drawing between the, the, the story of Jonah and what's happening here. Jonah is a, is a prophet, and God is angry against the Gentile city of Nineveh, and he's about to bring judgment on the city, and he says to Jonah, go and warn them. Go and warn them, Jonah, and Jonah doesn't want to go. Why doesn't he want to go? He doesn't want them to repent. He knows they will. And he knows that if they do, God will be merciful. And he hates them. And I'm, come on, we're a lot more like Jonah than we want to admit. Jonah, in order to get away from this calling and burden, obligation, goes to Joppa. And from there, he gets on board a ship to try to get away even from Joppa. And, you know, the rest of the story, he's thrown overboard, swallowed by the, the whale. He repents and goes to Nineveh, to the Gentiles. He preaches. And was it before he gets like halfway through the city, they're like repenting? They repent, and God is merciful. And Jonah has a pity party and pouts about it. Now, there are, there are connections, and very intentionally, I believe, being made by just, he's trying, Luke is calling back into memory, into view, Jonah, thoughts about Jonah. Peter, like Jonah, is in Joppa. Peter is a Jew and a Jewish prophet. And there's a Gentile that he's going, he's going to be called and sent to in the next chapter. And unlike Jonah, while he's sort of reluctant at first, he goes, he obeys, and he goes. So he's, Luke is trying to show that this is like Jonah, but this is like a new and a better Jonah, an obedient Jonah. And he doesn't throw a pity party afterwards. He celebrates it. When God is merciful to the Gentiles, and it's clear, Peter, like a new and a better Jonah, celebrates it and rejoices and confirms it. The act of baptism and persuades others that this is what the Lord intends to do and it's a good thing. Again, I think that's cool. And I think it's really helpful in understanding. Again, there's so many ways. Repetition of repetition in Scripture is often a way that the writers of Scripture are trying to draw your attention to something especially important. And there is a lot of repetition that starts right here, all the way through 10. This account with Cornelius at his house is like a story told three times. And so we're going to try to cover it all um, in one go next week. 
Uh, just a couple of concluding thoughts. Each of these accounts, first with Paul and after each of the two healings of Peter here, they each conclude with one of those summary statements of Luke that we've encountered before in, in Acts that emphasize the unstoppable power of the Spirit-empowered gospel or of the ministry. Acts 3.31, after Paul sails to Tarsus, it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Okay? Everything about Acts is increasing and blessing and growing and expanding. And it, it is the word of God that is doing the work. And so here the saints are continuing to, to increase. At the end of the first healing of Aeneas, it says in Acts in verse 35, all, all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him, Aeneas, and they turned to the Lord. And at the at Acts 9.42, it became known all over Joppa and many believed in the Lord. We may not have the miracles of Peter. We may not have the aptitude of Paul. But we have the same message and we share the same spirit. And we have an obligation to love the people of our town people in our schools, the people at our work, the people in our families, people wherever we meet them. We have this obligation to love them and to warn them and to persuade them if we can to repent of their sins and turn to the, to the one who is ready and willing to receive them in mercy and to forgive them and cleanse them and set them free and teach them and help them and give them eternal life. We have that obligation. So like the young men in, our, men in my office, we need to grow in love. I need to grow in love. And we need to start and fail and expose ourselves as really weak and bad at it so that then we can grow and be strengthened, study and pray, ask for prayer. That didn't go well. I'm really embarrassed. Would you guys pray for me that I wouldn't be discouraged and I'd try again and I'd grow? This is the way we grow. This is the way we get better. This is the way the Lord strengthens us. It's if we have faith to grow in love and to try and to start. Do you want to see God's kingdom advance in Bloomington? Then let's pray for God to help us grow in faith and love. And I'm going to pray for us now as we close. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your spirit and these particular examples and evidences of his power at work in the lives of both Paul and Peter. Thank you for these men and their example of faithfulness. 
And I pray, Father, that you would cause us now by the same Spirit that empowered them to be filled with all power to do the work set before your church to advance your cause with our words, with our appeals, with our advocacy, with our arguments, with our pleading, with our conversation, with our prayer, with all that we are. We offer ourselves to you such as we are in hopes that you will be pleased to use us and that you would inspire faith in us to be willing to start the work and to grow into it, even as such eminent men as these did. Help us to obey you immediately just as Paul did and get to the work and trust that you will use it, weak as it is, failing as we are, and that you will accomplish by your Spirit great things just as you are pleased to perfect your strength in weakness. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.